Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So after the Alter Rebbe finished explaining the idea, the Jewish idea of unity, of the unity of God, that from God's point of view, nothing is really separate from God. Everything is contained within God because God creates the world through His speech. But unlike human speech, when God speaks, the words are never separated from Him. They never leave Him because there's no space empty of God. The equivalent in a human being would be when we speak, before we speak. Where are those words before we speak? When those words are within their source, within you. The words come from you. You are the speaker. You are the communicators. Obviously, those words were there, but they were in a wordless form. They were formless and wordless. They were within you. They were part of you, but you can't find it inside of you. You don't even know, you're not even aware that it exists inside of you. It's there. And then, later on, you start thinking about it, and then you, the words appear, the words emerge. You start communicating, you start articulating in words. But when you get to the raw the raw experience or the raw emotion or the raw intellect, the source of words, there are no words. You don't love in French or in English or in, or in Russian. It's beyond words. It's the raw emotion or the raw intellect. So the source of words, there are no words, even though the words are there, but the words are totally non-existent. But then we speak, and then suddenly we're aware of words, and we have words and language, which we can we communicate and convey an idea. Now, that's true when a human being speaks. When God speaks, even after He speaks, it's the exactly like before He speaks. The words never leave God, because there's no space empty of God. So the words are always within God. Therefore, the very words, which is the source, the energy, the divine energy, the creative energy with which God creates us each and every moment, so our very source is always contained within, within God. And it's inseparable from God. So from God's point of view, from, which is the ultimate reality, we've never left God. There is no entity outside of God. There's nothing outside of God. All there is is really God. We are contained within God Himself. So we are unified within the absolute unity of God. So there's nothing separate or disconnected from God. That is certainly not how we feel subjectively, we feel egotistical, we feel independent, we feel ourselves. We don't even feel God. Many people are not even aware of God. We feel ourselves. As separate as egos, as separate beings. Because God did create us through speech, and therefore, to us, it appears as if it is the equivalent of human speech, where the words have a life of, of their own. Even though you are the author of the words and you are the source of the words, but once you speak, words have a life of their own. And they're independent of you. So too, the uh, creation appears to us to be separate and apart from God. God may be the speaker and the communicator, but we are very much, we feel and sense ourselves as separate beings, independent beings. And that is the idea, the Kabbalists talk about the idea of tzimtzum, contraction that God creates the world through contraction that He hides, He conceals Himself, and then enables us, allows us to feel separate and independent from God. He says, and based on this understanding, that from God's perspective, from God's point of view, there is no other reality but God. We are contained within the unity of God. 
and we never really left God. Even after God speaks, it's like before He spoke. And the words are still within their source. Now we can understand the whole beauty of a mitzvah, the power of a mitzvah, and especially the beauty of the idea of studying Torah. What's so special about studying Torah? And what's so special about doing a mitzvah? And based on this understanding, this deeper understanding of the unity of God, and it's not only that there's only one God and not two God. Jews are monotheists and we believe in one God and there aren't two gods. Or that we believe that God is the only power in the universe. But it's much deeper, it's much more profound than that. The Jewish idea of the unity of God is that there, all there is is God. Nothing else exists besides God. There is no other reality but God. Because all of creation, we have never left God. We are contained within God. So we're still within our source. So just like the words and the letters before you speak, in what state are those words? Those words are in a wordless state, are in a non-existent state. They're there, but they're non-existent. That is the true state of our existence. The true, state of, the true status of our being, from God's point of view, from the absolute point of view, from the ultimate point of view, from, from reality, as it's experienced from the inside out, is that we are in a state of non-existence. We are in a state of non-being. We are, we are contained within God. We're inseparable from God. But we don't feel it. We don't experience it. But when we do a mitzvah, then we become in that, then we become that state. Then we enter into that state. Then our lives reflect that reality. That we become totally unified with God. When you do a mitzvah, you become totally unified with God. And that is really the only way we have, the only path we have with which to become totally unified with God. There is no other path. Not through religion, not through meditation, not through music, not through spirituality, not through philosophy, not through theology. There is no path. Because we're human and we're finite. And even the angels don't have the tools, don't have the way, the path. Angels meditate 24-7, without any distraction. You can meditate for a thousand years. You don't have the path to really become unified with God. Because there is that symptom, there is that separation. There is that split, there is that disconnect. But when we do a mitzvah, when the Jew does the mitzvah, then you become totally unified with God. And that's true on, even on a much deeper level when a Jew studies Torah. And that's what he's going to explain um, in this chapter. In light of all that has been said above, we can better understand and more fully and clearly elucidate the statement in the Zohar that the Torah and God are entirely one, and the commentary in the Tikkunei Zohar that the 248 commandments are the 248 organs of the Divine King. He refers to the mitzvot as being the organs of God. The Torah and God are absolutely one. But the mitzvot are the organs of God. There are 248 limbs in the body. To the 248 mitzvot are the 248 organs of God, so to speak. And what that means is that just like the human body, what is the relationship between the human body to the soul? Our body is to our soul. The body is completely unified with the soul. What is the sign of a healthy body? When you're unselfconscious, you're not even conscious of your body. The body is light. 
The moment you feel yourself, that's a sign of illness. And we check in with one of the hospitals in this, around this neighborhood. But the healthy person doesn't feel himself. Because the body, you don't know where the soul ends and the body begins, where the body ends, the soul begins. They become inseparable. The body is part of you. When the body hurts, you feel the pain. You can't discard the body. It's not like clothes that you take on and take off, like a suit. Okay, let me change suits. Let me change the bodies for tonight. The body becomes an inseparable part of it. And therefore, the body is completely unselfconscious. The body is egoless. The identity of the body is the, is the soul. And therefore, the body draws down the soul. The body not only contains the soul, but the body draws down the soul. The eye is perfectly fit to draw down the ability within the soul to see. So the eye is a vessel, a vehicle that draws down that ability, that energy, that ability to see. And every organ in the body, every specific organ in the body, draws down another specific energy from the soul. And the body itself is alive. It's not just that the soul animates the body. The body itself becomes alive. You can tell the difference in a living body and, God forbid, a corpse. The body itself is alive. Every cell, every cell in the body is alive. So this is a helpful analogy. This helps us understand the relationship of the objects with which we do a mitzvah and the soul energy with which we do a mitzvah to God. The objects with which we do the mitzvah and the soul energy that we invest in doing the mitzvah, we become God's body, so to speak. Just like the body in relationship to its soul, so too God becomes our soul, God's wish, God's will, and we become, we are His body. And therefore we become completely unified and inseparable from God. Just like the body is completely unified and inseparable from the soul, so we become God's body. And by doing a mitzvah, we become inseparable and unified with God. For the mitzvot constitutes God's innermost will and His true desire, which is clothed in all the upper and lower worlds, thereby giving them life. As we discussed earlier, just like within a person, we have different levels of will. There are things that you really want in life. That's your ultimate goal. That's your ultimate desire. And then there are things that you do in order to get what, what you really want. There are many things you have to do. Many things that perhaps you're not really interested in doing. But the only way to get what you really want... For example, a person, a person works. You, not everyone is fortunate to enjoy everything that they do, everything they have to do. But you do it because you want to get paid at the end of the week. Now, why do you want to get paid? That's also not the ultimate desire. There's a reason why you want to get paid. What do you want to do with that money? So th there's, there are many layers. You know, maybe there's something that you look forward to all week and that's what you want to do, and there, this enables you to do it. Or, you're, or a person is amassing wealth, and that's how that's the identity is, t is tied up to your wealth, whatever it is. But th there's the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal. But in order to get to that goal, there are many things I have to do. So that's what we call an external will. In other words, that's just a means to an end. The end, this is where I really come alive. This is what I really want to do. But in order to get to that uh, end, there are many things I have to do. I may not despise it, but I have to do it. It's not that I really want to do it. If I had a choice not to do it, I wouldn't do it. I guess the proof is, if we won the lottery, if we would still show up to work. 
<laughs> we'll find out if we're really working because we want to work or because, because we're waiting for the paycheck at the end or whatever other reason. So there are many things in life which are external. We do it, it's a means to an end. But then there is the inner will. And everything in this world is an analogy. Helps us understand a God, if we look at the source. So, so too, there is the inner will of God and there is the, ex the external will of God. The external will of God is God desired a universe. He created heaven, He created earth, He created angels, He created higher levels of consciousness, He created the physical world, He created Wall Street, He created finances, He created societies and governments and people and the whole universe. But what is the inner will? What's the purpose? What's the goal? What's, what's it all about? What does God really want in life? The inner goal is Torah and Mitzvah. As it says right in the beginning of Bereshit, right in the beginning of Genesis, Bereshit. So Rashi, right at the beginning, says Bereshit means Bez, Reshit. There are two beginnings. There's two reasons why God created the world. The entire world was created for the Jew and for the Torah. The whole purpose of creation was what did God desire? What does God want? He wants us to study Torah and to do a mitzvah. This is the whole purpose of creation. But in order, to be able to fulfill that desire, God had to create a whole universe. Both heaven as well as earth. He created a whole com complex universe, a spiritual universe, and its counterpart, a material, a physical universe. And then we operate within this framework. And then when we overcome difficulties that we have, and we overcome our natures, and we do the right thing, and we study Torah, and we do a mitzvah, this is what gives God pleasure. This is, the, this is what gives Him delight. This is what it's all about. This is the whole ultimate purpose. So what was His desire, His innermost desire was the mitzvah. That's what He wanted. That was the purpose. That's what it's all about. That's, that's what gives Him pleasure. That's what God cares about. Wall Street, business, that's not what God cares about. He created it. These are all neutral. They're means to an end. He created this whole universe in order to be able, to enable us to do Torah mitzvot. Because there's a, a mitzvah, and it's one of the most important mitzvot, to give tzedakah. In order to give tzedakah, you need Wall Street, and you need the whole financial world, and you need currency, and you need money, and you need markets, and you need... But that's just a means to an end. It's what you do with it. It's when you utilize that money that hard-earned money, and you give tzedakah, this is what gives God pleasure. When you do an act of goodness and kindness, this is what gives God pleasure. That's what it's all about. That's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate purpose. That's when God, so to speak, comes, comes alive. That's what is, that's his nachas. That's his entertainment. That's his pleasure. But in order to achieve that, God also desired everything that exists. In order to achieve that goal, he had to create a whole world, a whole universe. So the mitzvot are the inner will of God. And they are clothed in all the worlds. In other words, that's the motivation why He created the entire universe. Both the upper world, the spiritual realms. Why did God create higher levels of consciousness and angels and all the supernal beings and all the spiritual, spiritual realms? It's just a means to an end. The end, the ultimate is this world. When a Jew lives in this world and he has freedom of choice, 
a world which is coarse, a world which is dark, a world in which there's conflict and there's confusion and things are not clear and you need faith and you need strength and when a Jew deliberately and willingly chooses to do the right thing and chooses to study Torah and do a mitzvah this is what gives God infinite pleasure this is what it's all about everything else is, is a me- secondary is a means to an end it's like a prop it's a whole play it's a prop the whole universe is just a prop but where's the drama there's no drama in heaven where's the drama the drama is in this world this is where the drama is. This is where the conflict is. This is where the excitement is. This is where the change is. This is where it's unpredictable. It can go either way. There are no newspapers in heaven. Heaven is quite boring. Everything is predictable. The angels grow from level to level and they meditate and, and they constantly grow step by step. But there's nothing, there's no radical change. There's no, nothing unpredictable. There are no surprises. It's this world that's full of surprises. It's this world that's so unpredictable. It's this world that's so exciting. This is the engine room of the whole universe. This is the whole purpose of the whole universe. This is, this is what gives God tremendous delight and pleasure. When we make a moral decision, living in this world, living, being an earthy, down-to-earth person, living in a very earthy, crusty, coarse world, and yet we're able to rise above our natures and able to do the right thing, take money, the ultimate ego symbol, and give tzedakah with it. What a novelty. What a concept. That's drama. That's dramatic. That's what gives God tremendous nachas, tremendous pleasure. So everything else is just a means to an end. So the motivation behind all of the worlds, both the upper as well as the lower worlds, the, the spiritual as well as the material worlds, is all the mitzvot. That is the ultimate purpose. That, that is God's ultimate desire. That's what it's all about. The very life and sustenance of all the worlds is dependent upon the performance of the mitzvot by the creatures of the lower worlds as is known that performing a mitzvah draws godly life and sustenance into all the worlds. So, in other words, once your inner desire is fulfilled, once you're getting pleasure, then everyone benefits, everything benefits. In other words, once the purpose of creation is fulfilled, that when we do mitzvot in this world, we increase in our activities, in our Jewish activities. We do more mitzvot. That adds energy and sustenance to all of the worlds, all of the realms, including the highest spiritual supernal realms. Because that is the whole ultimate purpose. So when God gets excited, and God is delighted, and God is, because we've done more mitzvah, and He's pleasantly surprised that we chose deliberately and consciously chose to do the right thing, that adds life and sustenance to all of creation. If God forbid, we're not doing the right thing. Then the whole purpose, then what's the purpose? So God has no desire. The whole universe is not an end in itself. The whole universe is a means to an end. Everything is a means to an end. And that's something that every, every creature by nature feels that, knows that, that we're just a means to an end. You know, everyone feels like a cog in this huge universe, in this huge machinery called the universe. We're a means to an end. But then there's the end. Not a means. There's the end. The end in itself. Mitzvot, Torah mitzvot are an end in itself. It's not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. 
So if God forbid we're not fulfilling that end, we're not fulfilling Torah and mitzvot, then God loses interest in the universe. What's the point? Who cares? It's irrelevant. It doesn't excite him. It doesn't interest him. You think he reads the Forbes 400 to see? I mean, who cares? It's not, the whole thing is irrelevant. What we get excited about means nothing to God. Or even in the spiritual realms. Spiritual breakthroughs. All of this is meaningless and irrelevant. The only thing that God cares about and means something to and is an end in itself is Torah mitzvah, when we do the right thing. So when we do the right thing, then, then God has an interest in the universe. And then He sustains the universe and intensifies and increases the life flow, the blessings. That's why when a Jew does Torah mitzvah, the whole world is blessed. The Midrash says that if the non-Jewish nations would know how much blessings is brought into this world as a result of the Temple, they would have surrounded the Temple and not allowed Titus, the Roman army, to destroy the Temple. If they would have realized when the Jew is standing in the Temple, the priest is standing in the Temple and offering the sacrifice and doing the mitzvot in the Temple, how much sustenance, how much blessing, a flow of divine blessing that brought to all the nations of the world, they would not allow them to destroy the Temple. Are you kidding? We're going to destroy the Temple? This is the source of all blessings. Because the more we are fulfilling the mitzvot, the more we are delighting God and fulfilling the ultimate purpose of creation, then God showers the universe with blessing, bestows the universe with blessing, and intensifies and increases the life flow on all levels. So the angels receive more and more blessing. They receive a greater divine revelation on their level, down to material blessings, more health, more, more financial success on all levels. So the entire universe is dependent on Torah and Mitzvah. Because that is the driving force behind everything. That's the purpose why God created everything. There is no other purpose. That is the purpose, period. That is the end. Everything else is a means to the end. So the more you strengthen the end, the more the means to the end are all blessed. Can, can that be quantified? I mean, is that something that you can say there are more observant Jews at this point in history, therefore the world was better off in general? I mean, how do you know that that's really happening? Well, we just read last week. We see what happened when the whole world became corrupt. It's, uh, it was destroyed. It self-destructed. Because God had no purpose for the world. What's the purpose? There's no purpose. If the purpose is just to be a godless, ruthless um, society, uh, purely evil and, and false and, and full of intrigue and deception and God has no interest. He saved it because of Noah, because it was one human being, one family, who had the more moral and ethics and integrity. A righteous Gentile, in his merit, he sustained the world. Because otherwise, otherwise God had no interest in the world. I mean, what's the point? The world is not an end in itself. It's just a means to an end. And then God promised that there'll never be another flood, because then came the birth of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so the conscience of the world... So therefore, they sustain the world. As the, as the verse says, the tzaddik is the foundation of the world. The tzaddik is the pillar of the whole world. In his merit, God sustains the whole, the whole, the whole world. As it says, in certain generations, it was never, they never saw the rainbow. The rainbow was the sign of the covenant that God will never destroy the world. But in, in the generation of Shimon Bayechai, the author of the Zohar, he was so righteous that in his merit, he sustained the whole world. There was never a rainbow. I'll never forget, when the Rebbe passed away, when they brought the coffin out of 770 
was pointed out by Channel 7, you know, the, all the TV stations were there. You can see a rainbow came out. Yeah. That moment was a beautiful rainbow. Was it raining that day? Yeah, it was raining. It started raining. Yeah, it was raining. It was drizzling. It was raining. And you saw a rainbow. It was almost like, <laughs> the only reason I'm not destroying the world now is because there's a rainbow. I made a covenant. But it's in the merit of the tzaddik. Who single-handedly, God sustains the whole world because he gives God so much pleasure. The righteous person gives God so much pleasure. That's the whole purpose of creation. In other words, that was the purpose why he created it. Because of the souls of the righteous, when he saw that, how much good they're going to do, how much light they're going to bring. And despite all the darkness, and despite all the odds, they will overcome their, their nature and their human weakness and foibles and all. Have the strength and the courage to do the right thing. This inspired God. That was the whole purpose of creation. That's what motivated him. There was no other reason. There was no other purpose. That's the only thing that, that delights God that he, that he finds interesting. That's entertaining to God. Everything else is... It's meaningless, absolutely meaningless, inherently meaningless. It's just a means to an end. So the more we strengthen the core, the essence, the purpose, the more sustenance, the more life, the more blessing there is. And the Torah states it clearly. If the Jewish people will follow the Torah and the mitzvah, the whole world will be blessed. And they will usher in Mashiach, that's Mashiach, and the whole world will be blessed. Because God takes delight in the world. And God sees there's so much goodness, and so much selflessness, and so much kindness, and so much light, then God blesses the whole world. Vice versa. It's not a punishment, it's a consequence. But this is, this is the motivating force, this is the, the energy, this is the, the behind everything. So the entire world, their sustenance, is dependent on the performance of our mitzvah. So we are in the engine room, we are driving the whole universe. We have to be careful. I feel funny asking this question, but I've often thought about it. What makes a person bad or good? I'm a little bit confused about that. I mean, some people are really mean and can murder people, and so how does a person get to be like that? I don't get it. Well, uh, it's not really so important how and what got them there. It's um, because we believe that everyone has freedom of choice. Obviously, everyone has their struggle, everyone on their own level. It's hard for us to relate to a person who's, te who's tempted to murder. We just can't relate to it. We're not even tempted to murder. It's no big deal that we don't murder because we're not tempted to murder. I mean, it's so far, it's so foreign to us. You know, we, we can't think ourselves of, as paragons of virtue, virtue because we're not murderers. I mean, it's not even, it's not even, doesn't, we never, we never even entertain anything like, whether we're not rapists or murderers. And it's, you can't just easily condemn someone who is because the question is, in that, that area in your life that is a struggle for you, how do you make out? <laughs> Are you able to overcome your instinct? Are you able to overcome your urges? Everyone has a struggle. Life is a struggle, period. Everyone on their own level. They tell a beautiful story that was a, it's like a parable. Once a year, there's a uh, convention of all the eight Saharas, of all the evil inclinations all over the world. This was in, in Russia, and uh, there was the Yitzhahara of uh, Berlin and the Yitzhahara of Paris. They were sitting, they were the fattest, they were the strongest. They were sitting at the head, the bank, the head table at the banquet at the end of the year. Then you had the Yitzhahara of the city of Lubavitch, very scrawny. <laughs> he was barely alive. <laughs> you know, he uh, looked anorexic, and he's sitting in the back. And they were all shocked. Who wins the prize? 
but the, the most effective and most powerful Yetzirah was the one from Lubavitch. And everyone was stunned. What do you mean? How could, you, how could he win the prize? Look at the Yetzirah of Berlin and Paris. Look how many people they caused intermarry and look how many, how, many, how many people they caused to sin and how many people they caused to commit adultery and how much evil and intrigue and lies and deception. And Yetzirah and Lubavitch was embarrassed, ashamed. He had nothing to report. What did he have to report? He got a yeshiva boy uh, in the middle of praying, instead of thinking about meditating on the greatness of God, he was thinking about uh, an explanation in the Talmud, a naughty piece of Talmud, that wasn't the right time to think about it. You have to think about it when you study, when you're praying, you have to think about God. He was embarrassed, he was ashamed of himself, he had nothing to show for himself, and he won the prize. Because it's called trickle-down morality. In other words, when the greatest Jew, when he doesn't live up to his struggles, on his level, when he just coasts along and lives comfortably and doesn't overcome his struggle, that trickles down that another Jew will end up intermarrying or will fail in his struggle. So life is a struggle for everyone in their own level. But everyone does have the freedom of choice to be able to overcome their urge and their instinct. We're not animals. We're not condemned. Genes are not destiny. There are 20 million recovering alcoholics in America who were Gene-wise, it's predisposed to alcoholism. So, it's not destiny. It doesn't mean you're not an animal. You can overcome it. it may be difficult, but you can overcome it. Everyone has a struggle. Life is a struggle, period. And the purpose of life is not to succumb to your urges, to your instincts, to take the lowest, you know, the easy way out. The ultimate purpose in life is to be able to rise, to overcome your urge, overcome your instinct. That's when you become a real person. That's when you start living. That's when you come alive. That's when you exercise the greatest gift of all, a gift of freedom. We exercise the divine ability that God gave us. We have freedom of choice. So everyone has a struggle in their level. So you can't, again, you're right. You can't quantify it. You can't say, well, compared to this person, I'm righteous. He's, a mur- he's an axe murderer and I'm, I'm such a saint. Really? really? I mean, let's look a little closer. Maybe he has such an overwhelming struggle, it's difficult for him to, to overcome it. Do you deal with your struggles? Well, you're not struggling, you're just coasting along. It's easy for you. Whatever you're doing, the good that you're doing is just comes natural. That's, that doesn't, that's not... You haven't cho- chosen, you haven't really overcome anything, you haven't had to exercise your choice, really grow, really change, really think about Hashem in a deep way, internalize godliness in a real way and become a godly person. You're like an animal. You're just coasting along. It's natural. It's instinctive. It feels good. It feels comfortable. That's not a paragon of virtue. That's, we haven't even started. We haven't even scratched the surface. So everyone in their own level. It's a quality thing. It's a very personal, subjective thing. Everyone in their own level. Our trials and tribulations, our struggles are custom-made. Customized. Very personal. Because every one of us is unique and we have our own unique trials and tribulations. We have our own areas in our life that are seem to be insurmountable and difficult and we simply can change and we're so tempted just to throw in the towel and focus on those areas in our life that are easy to change but that's the wrong answer the right answer is we every, that's the key to our Fort Knox that area in your life that's the most difficult that's the key to your life if you don't deal with it if you ignore it you'll never get anywhere you'll never become anything you'll never really grow you'll never really exercise that divine potential you never really connect with God and when the greatest person is able to overcome his struggle, 
that gives strength to the axe murderer and the would-be rapist to overcome his urge and his instinct. The Torah demands of him to overcome his urge and not to murder. God stood at Sinai and God yelled, Thou shalt not murder with thunder and lightning. He's talking to a person who has an urge to murder. We can't even relate to it. But God expects that person to overcome his urge and not to murder because it's, God says, don't murder. But if the person on top trickle-down morality, if the highest Jew challenges himself and pushes himself beyond his own limits, that will trickle down, that will give strength to the lowest person. Which explains why in the shtetl it was practically violent-free. The madman in the shtetl was a, was a harmless, a harmless nincompoop. But it was violent. It was, it was violent-free. There was no violence in the shtetl. And why is society today so violent? And you can't explain it because of the inner cities. That's nonsense. During the Depression, people slept with their doors open. There was worse poverty than anything we can imagine. There was no crime. Period. Zero. So what kind of nonsense, inner city crime, inner city violence, that, that, that's... It's because trickle-down morality. It's expressed in the Yiddish. A fish for stink, stink from cup. If a fish smells, it smells from the head. The problem is not the inner city. The problem is what's going on behind closed doors in the top 10%, the top echelon of society. If they're corrupt and decadent, Yes, then the lowest 10% will end up being violent. But look at the shtetl. Where were the top 10%? Where were their heads? Where were their minds? Where were they? They were spiritual. They constantly challenged themselves. They were growing. They were, they were struggling with their own spiritual, subtle struggles. But that gave strength to the lowest element, lowest common denominator, to elevate them. So everyone struggles in life, but everyone on their own level. A lot of it depends on nature and nurture and all of the above together. Why is one person ends up, you know, some people have broken families and broken homes. And, you know, there are many, many causes for how a person ends up with such struggles. And that's your strength. Don't forget, you have the strength. God doesn't give a person a challenge they can't handle. So if you were put into that position... That means that God had given you all the strength that you need in order to be able to overcome that difficult situation. And the greater the difficulty only means that you have greater strength than average. If you have a below average difficulties, I mean, greater than average difficulties also means that you have extraordinary strength, above average strength, that you just have to exercise and to utilize. And there are many people with very humble backgrounds who grew into greatness. So external difficulties are not an excuse, are not, uh, not destiny. People can overcome it. Of course, it's much, the more difficult, much more challenging, but they must have extraordinary souls. God placed them in such difficult circumstances. They must have extraordinary souls, and they have the ability to be able to, o- to overcome that. But let's not get too far afield from our original discussion. You want, you want to read the, the next uh, paragraph? It follows... It follows that the performance and fulfillment of the mitzvot is the innermost garment for the innermost aspect of God's will, since it is due to this performance of the mitzvot that the light and life of the worlds issues forth from the divine will to be clothed in them. That is, since God desires the worlds only as a vehicle for the performance of the mitzvot, as explained above, and it is only for this reason that he animates the worlds. Hence, the mitzvot are figuratively described as organs of the king. For just as the organs of the human body are a garment for its soul, 
and are completely and utterly surrendered to it, as is evident from the fact that as soon as a person desires to stretch out his hand or foot, they obey his will immediately, without any command or instruction to them, and with no delay whatever, but at the very instant that it entered his will. So we see that the body is completely unified with the soul. The moment the soul wants to do something, you don't have to command your body, lift your hand. You don't have to mechanically lift your hand. The moment you desire to lift your hand, your hand automatically moves. The body is so in tune with the soul that the body is not religious. You don't have to command the body and the body obeys the soul. The body is tuned in with the soul. The body becomes one with the soul. The identity of the body becomes the identity of the soul. So whatever the soul wants, the body automatically responds. And therefore, with, there's no delay. The moment you want to move your hand, it's not like you have to process it. Okay, first you have to process it in your mind. And then you have to, the mind has to, has, to, has to let your heart know. And then your heart has to tell your hand to move. No, the moment your soul wants to move, the body is so in tune with your soul that the body automatically moves. So the body is completely egoless. It's inseparable. It becomes a part of the soul. Even though the body essentially is not really part of the soul. Because the soul existed without the body. Before you were born, and then the soul enters the body. When you're born, your body is created. Your soul is not created. Your soul enters into your body. Your soul existed in heaven, and your soul enters your body. So your body is created, but your soul was existed before. When a person dies, the body dies. The body is separated from the soul. The soul doesn't die. The soul doesn't drown, and the soul, you can't shoot a soul, and the soul doesn't burn. The personality, your character, the soul is, lives on forever. Energy is forever. It's eternal. So the, the soul continues to live. It's the body that dies, and the body becomes a corpse. So the body inherently is a separate from the soul. But when the person is alive, you don't know where the soul ends and the body begins. They become inseparable. The body itself becomes alive. Every cell in the body is alive. The flesh is alive. It's not, just the, it's not like a machine that the electricity pushes the machine to do something. It's not a machine. The machine and electricity have no connection. It's just technically, mechanically, it forces the machine mechanically to move, to do something. That's not, when a person moves, when you move your hand, it's not like a machine. Electricity pushing the machine. The body itself is alive. It's in tune with the soul. The moment the soul wants to move, the body moves. Without unhesitating, without even thinking. Because the body becomes the soul. The body becomes inseparable from the soul. What is the identity of the body of the soul? So there is no ego. There's no separation. There's no politics in your body. There's no ego. It's not like there's a soul and there's a body and the body is religious and the body obeys and the soul forces the body to move. No. The body and the soul become one and inseparable. The wish of the soul is the wish of the body. The, the soul moves automatically, the hand moves. The body becomes an extension and an expression of the soul. Nothing other than the soul. That's its complete identity. It becomes completely identified with the soul. That's the analogy of the ultimate unity. It becomes so unified, inseparable from the soul. There's nothing else in life we can use as an analogy where it becomes so inseparable. It becomes completely unified with the soul. This is what the Zohar means. When he refers to the mitzvot as the organs of God, the 248 organs of God. Just as the organs of the human body are completely united with one soul and are surrendered to it, so too is the life force animating the performance and fulfillment of the commandments completely surrendered to the divine will which is clothed therein. And this life force becomes in relation to the divine will like a body to a soul.
Likewise, the external garment of the divine soul, that is, its faculty of action, which is external compared to the faculties of speech and thought, since it functions outside oneself, of the person fulfilling and practicing the commandment, clothes itself in the vitality of the performance of the mitzvah, and thus it too becomes like a body to a soul in relation to the divine will. That is, the soul's power of action becomes united with the divine will in the same way as one's body is united with his soul and is completely surrendered to the divine will. The objects with which you do a mitzvah and the life force that sustains that object, let's say the tefillin you're doing a mitzvah with or the candle which you're lighting the Shabbos candles with, and so too the power the energy inside your soul with which you're doing the mitzvah, the ability that you have, your soul has to act, which is animating your hand to light the candle, to put on the tefillin, to shake the lulav and the esher, whatever, any mitzvah, any of the 613 mitzvah. That object becomes a sacred object, becomes a holy object. Because that object becomes like the body to God. God is the soul. And that object becomes, so to speak, just like the relationship of our body to our soul, so too, God desired that we should do mitzvot. And these are the objects that God desired we should do the mitzvah with. So when you take the object with which God desired you should do the mitzvah, you take the lulav and the esrog, and you shake them, then that energy, that lulav and esrog, and the life force that's pushing your hand to do the mitzvah, they become God's body, so to speak. And they become totally unified and inseparable with God. So the mitzvah is really the only way through which we can become completely unified and, and inseparable from God. Now, the question you may ask is, isn't it true of all of creation? Isn't the truth that God is the soul and the world is the body? Just like in the body and soul. Nothing happens in the human body without the soul. You don't lift the pinky unless the soul wants you to move. Without the soul, the body is a corpse. So isn't it the truth that in reality... Everything that happens in this world, God is the soul, and the world is, is just like God's body. As the Talmud says, a person doesn't lift a pinky unless it was decreed in heaven that he should lift a pinky. Nothing happens in this world unless God wants it to happen. You can choose from today till tomorrow, you can desire from today till tomorrow. If it's not destined that you should be rich, all the scheming in the world and all the thievery in the world won't, won't make you one penny more than God decided on Rosh Hashanah. But you can still change, that's but again, you have to change the heaven. You have to change Hashem's desire. Yes, you can change your decree, but you have to change God's desire. Nothing happens in this world unless it's decreed, unless God wants it to happen. And how do you change the Hashem's desire? Through tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah. <laughs> return, tzedakah, righteousness, and tefillah, and prayer, and connection. That's the only way. That's addressing the root cause. If you really want to change something, of course, you have to go to the doctor, you have to go to the financial consultant. But that's all, that's just dealing with the symptom. If you really want to, want to change something, you have to change it at the root, root cause. You have to change something in the divine. Because if God is the soul. Nothing happens in this world without the, without the soul. God is in total control of this world, just like the soul is in total control of the body. The body is nothing. What's the body? The body is a corpse without the soul. The body doesn't move the slightest movement without the soul. Even though we don't see the soul, but we know without the soul, we, we feel without the soul, nothing happens. Same as in this world. The truth is, the reality is that nothing happens in this world. A person doesn't lift a pinky. The smallest thing that happens in this world, if it was decreed that you should be rich, and you happen to steal, if you would have been honest, you would have made exactly the same amount of money. And the difference is, if you were honest, 
the money would go to healthy things. That now that you've stolen, now the money will be used for doctor bills and God forbid, and be used for, for uh, grief. But if you would have been honest and done, done, the, done the business in a moral, ethical, and without cheating anyone, without being dishonest, you would have enjoyed the money and you would have, it would have been used for a wholesome way. But you cannot earn one penny more than was decreed in heaven. It won't help. Nothing is going to help. So, therefore, it, so isn't it the truth? We know that God is, the, God is in total control of this world. Nothing happens without God. The slightest movement in this world has a divine source. So why does he say here that it's only the mitzvah that are like a body to God? That the mitzvah, the, the, uh, the action of the mitzvah, and the object with which you do the mitzvah, and the energy that pushes your hand to do the mitzvah, they are like God's organs. And they become a body to God who is the soul. Isn't the truth is that everything in this world is like a body to the soul? And the answer is yes, that's true. But we don't feel it. We don't sense it. The way we feel and what we perceive and we sense, we sense that we're independent. We don't sense that we are the body and God is the soul. And nothing happens without God. And we don't lift a pinky. We don't sense that truth. And it's interesting, in the human analogy, the Zohar uses the analogy, the Zohar says that the mitzvot are God's organs. Not every part of the body is an organ. There are many parts of the body, inner organs, that are not really called organs. When he calls the 248 organs, as, as uh, counted in the Mishnah, in the oral tradition, there are certain organs that are not counted. For example, the stomach. That's not, that's not considered an organ, in this count of organs. Because you see that you, you can't control. You can't control the movement of your stomach. Certain, that the ordinary people can't control. You can't consciously and deliberately control. You can control your hand, you can control your feet. You can't control, you know, to decide to close your stomach because I will my stomach to close. There's certain things you can't control. And that's the analogy that the world, the mitzvot are like the organs that you see the direct connection to the soul. The moment the soul wants to move, the, the hand moves. The rest of the world is compared to like, like those inner organs that you don't see the strong connection between the soul and the organ. You see that the soul doesn't control. On a conscious level, you don't control. On a conscious level, you don't control those organs. You can't control it. It's, it's beyond your control. So too, on a conscious level, the world is not conscious of godliness. The world is not conscious that we're like a body to the soul. If we were conscious that we are like a body to the soul, this world would be a very holy place, a very wholesome place, a very moral, ethical, good, genuine, authentic place. We don't, we're not conscious of that connection. We're very much conscious of our egos, of ourselves. We're independent. We're self-made men. We're rugged individual. We, we are the, our, the movers and the shakers and the creators. And we, many people don't even give, give God an afterthought. But when you do a mitzvah, when you're willingly and consciously doing the will of God, then even consciously, you are holy. You're doing something holy. Even consciously, you're connecting, you're becoming like an organ to God. You're becoming totally inseparable and united and absolutely one with God. That's the gift, that's the beauty, that's what's so precious about a mitzvah. The mitzvah gives us the opportunity to become the body to God, which becomes inseparable and completely unified with God, because God desired us to do a mitzvah, and we go ahead and do it. So just like the body automatically responds to the soul, 
God spelled out in the Torah. He gave us 248 mitzvot, and we go ahead and we do it. Every organ in our body is doing another mitzvah. So we become like God's body, inseparable from God. God desired, and we express it. We become an expression of God. You said for some people, certain acts are very easy. You know, certain acts of chesed are very easy. So I'm wondering, well, you know, what's uh, the real value, intrinsic value? Is that really, you know, uh, operating as God, operating as the soul to the body, where it's, you know, it doesn't require any conscious effort, doesn't require willingness, or in other situations, doing a mitzvah, let's say, whatever the technical is, but no feeling, you know, just the flat, okay, do this, do this, you know, shake the S-rod, okay, did the mitzvah. Well, not really. So I'm wondering about those experiences with the mitzvah. Obviously, uh, the mitzvot that require sacrifice, or the mitzvot that are difficult, or also in the positive. Everyone has a mitzvah, as discussed elsewhere in the Tanya. Everyone has a mitzvah that inexplicably, this is your mitzvah. I can't explain it, but out of the 613 mitzvah, this is your mitzvah. You respond to this mitzvah. One person could be visiting the sick. That's your mitzvah. You go crazy about it. It's just, this gives you energy. This, this enthuses you. This is what gives you energy to do all the other mitzvah. Everyone has their favorite mitzvah. Inexplicably, you can't explain it, but this is your portion. This is your gateway. That, that opens up the path for all the other mitzvah. So a person has to know both the positive. You have to know what is your strength, what is your uniqueness, what excites you, what really gets to you in a very positive way, and that unleashes all the energy inside you, gets your juices flowing. That's, that's your inheritance, that's your uh, lot in life. Also, in the challenging area, what's that the most difficult part in your life? That's also your lot in life. That's customized, that's unique to you. And unless you deal with it, that's where your Fort Knox is, that's where your gold is buried. The only way you're going to unlock and unleash all the energy in your soul is when you deal with that difficulty, not ignore it. And of course, that, that has tremendous, tremendous value. But the mitzvah, objectively, when you do a mitzvah, so then you become like a body to God's soul. Especially since deep down, every Jew wants to do the right thing. So even when you just do the mitzvah, you know, you, it seems to be you're just doing the mitzvah mechanically and by rote. Deep down, your soul is on fire. Whether you're aware of it or not, our soul is on fire. So when you do the mitzvah, it touches you in a very deep place, not on a conscious level, because you're asleep, but it's there. And it doesn't change the effect of the mitzvah. The, myth, the effect of the mitzvah, you've done something holy. It may be covered up, you don't realize it and that's sad that's that's a tragedy that's what we call exile a spiritual exile you're doing the mitzvah you're a body to God you're inseparable and completely united with God and you're asleep you're doing it begrudgingly you're doing it perfunctorily joy, joylessly without passion without life that's the saddest thing of all that's really that's really you're doing something so profound and yet it's so dark so joyless, as if someone is forcing you to do it, you know, by rote, or for all the wrong reasons, for ulterior motives. Lightning is going to strike me, God is going to punish me. I mean, it's, you're, right now you're achieving the ultimate, the unity with God, something that the angels could only be envious of you and jealous of you. The angels could only dream of something like that. They, they don't have that opportunity. You can meditate for a thousand years. When a Jew does one mitzvah, you become inseparable and united with God.
You should be jumping from joy at the opportunity. But when you're doing the mitzvah and you don't realize that it's an opportunity, and you don't realize what a gift and what a blessing and what a... And instead you look at it as, oh, nebuch, oh. Hey, I have to go another mitzvah, another obligation. Out of guilt or out of fear. That's the saddest of all. That's the greatest tragedy. The religious Jew, who's in a dark place. No joy, no love, no passion, no excitement, no thrill, no, no kavana, no soul. That's, that's the saddest of all. But it doesn't change the fact. The fact is, when you're doing a mitzvah, you are connecting with the essence of God. That's why the Torah says a person should always do the mitzvah. Even if you're doing it for an ulterior motive. Get on the train. You're on the train. If you don't do the mitzvah, you miss the boat. You're not a, you miss the train. You can have all the intentions in the world, all the meditations in the world. If you don't physically do the mitzvah, you'll miss the train. Get on the train. So yeah, you're in fourth class. You're hiding under the seat. But once you're on the train, then you can move up to first class. He doesn't have to wake up and, and realize what's going on. Then you can, you can easily tra- transfer to first class. But you're there. You have the mitzvah. You've done it. The deed is done. You have that connection. The link is there. It's hidden. It's buried. It's concealed. But it's there. The money is in the bank. You're just not accessing it. But it's there. So a person should do a mitzvah even with an ulterior motive. Because deep down inside, even when you're asleep, deep down your soul is on fire. The Jewish soul is always on fire. There are things happening on a much deeper level that we, can, we can't even fathom. And the soul is aware of what's happening. The soul does know on the deepest level, the soul knows what happens when you do a mitzvah. And the soul is on fire and the soul is jumping from joy. But on the conscious level, totally unaware of it. And that's sad. That's the saddest of all. It's truly a tragedy. <laughs> when you're a billionaire and you're walking around like, in tatters, homeless, starving to death. That's the saddest of all. Is there a greater tragedy, a human tragedy than that? So do the mitzvah and learn and wake up and study time, <laughs> study chassidus. <laughs> okay, continue. In this way, those organs of the human body which perform the mitzvah, that is, those organs in which the divine soul's faculty of action is clothed during the performance and fulfillment of the mitzvah, they too become a veritable vehicle, literally Merkava, a chariot for the divine will. If you pay close attention, he's introducing a new concept here, a vehicle. A vehicle is also egoless. A vehicle is like, is like putting it in your hands, like the axe in the hands of the builder. It does whatever you want. It doesn't <laughs> offer any resistance. It's just a tool. It also becomes an extension of you. Wherever you want to go, you don't have to wrestle with the car. The car doesn't have a mind of its own. No, I want to go here. But I'm going to obey you and I'm going to... The car does whatever you want. So a vehicle is completely nullified and unified with the rider, the one who's riding the vehicle. But nevertheless, it's not the same like body and soul. The vehicle is not you. The vehicle is separate from you. It's like clothes that you wear. You can take on, you can take off. You can put on, you can take off. It's not part of you. The body is part of you. You can't discard your body. The body is you. The body becomes part of you. You feel the pain in the body. You can't just... So the body is a much deeper unity. The, the unity of the body and the soul is much deeper than the unity of the chariot, the vehicle with the rider. So he makes a distinction here between the object of the mitzvah, the object of the mitzvah, which actually becomes a holy, myth, a holy object, 
and the spiritual energy in your soul that's animating your hand to do the mitzvah. Those two items become like a body to God's soul. To them, the Zohar refers to as they become the organs of God, 248 organs of God, which become totally united and inseparable from God. And that's why they become holy. But your physical arm that's doing the mitzvah, or, or not only that, he says even more so. For example, you read the next paragraph? For example, the hand. For example, the hand which distributes charity to the poor or performs another commandment becomes in the act of performing the mitzvah a chariot for the divine will. Similarly, the feet which walk for the purpose of fulfilling a mitzvah, or the mouth and tongue which speak words of Torah, or the brain reflecting on the Torah or on the fear of heaven, or on the greatness of God, blessed be he. When these organs are occupied with the mitzvot, they are totally surrendered like a chariot to the divine will clothed in these mitzvot. He says not only the hand with which you're doing the mitzvah, the hand with which you're distributing tzedakah to the poor, where you do any mitzvah, you're putting on tefillin, shaking the lulav and the esrog, but even the legs, the feet, which take you to do the mitzvah, you're walking to do the mitzvah, they too become a chariot to God. <coughs> but your physical organs could only become a chariot. They do not become unified with God. They don't become holy. But they become like a chariot to God. So at that moment, they become unified, not the same level of unity as the body and the soul, which become inseparable, that they become divine and godly. The physical object with which you do the mitzvah becomes divine and holy. But at that moment, they become a chariot to God. So therefore, there's a certain holiness that also, at that moment, your leg and your arms and all the organs with which you're doing the mitzvah, the lips that you're moving, the physical lips with which you're saying the words of Torah, or the brain with which you're, you're comprehending the words of Torah, they all become a chariot to God, a vehicle to God, and therefore, they contain uh, the presence of God. So they contain a certain level of holiness at that moment, while you're doing the mitzvah. And that's the difference. In this week's Torah portion, we, we're, we're reading in this week's Torah portion about the ultimate mitzvah, the mitzvah for males, the mitzvah of bris. What's unique about the mitzvah of a bris? What's unique about the mitzvah of a bris is that it's a mitzvah that becomes part of your body all the other mitzvot you do with the organs of your body. You use your hands, you use your, your lips, you use your, your legs to go to the mitzvah, to go to the mitzvah. But here, the actual mitzvah itself, this is the actual mitzvah. So you become holy. A part of your body becomes holy. A part of your body that most people don't associate with holiness, and that becomes the holiest. And it's a mitzvah that's always present, 24-7. Because your body has become holy. That's why it's, it's a covenant. It's an eternal covenant with God. Because the object of the mitzvah, the actual object of the mitzvah, is actually, it actually has become etched into your body. And a part of your body has become an object of a mitzvah. A holy object. A sacred object. A holy object. Unlike the bris, the other organs, they become a chariot through which you do the mitzvah. Just like the chariot takes the rider wherever the rider wants to go. So too, in order for God's will to be fulfilled, God desired that the mitzvah should, should be done. The only way to do the mitzvah is when your legs will take you there and when your hands will do the mitzvah. So at that moment, your hands and your legs become the tools, the chariot, the vehicle through which God's desire is fulfilled. And without them, God's desire couldn't be fulfilled. Without the chariot, without the vehicle, you couldn't get to wherever you want to go. 
So they become the tools through which your wish is fulfilled. So we become our organs. By fulfilling the mitzvah, our organs becomes the tools through which God's desire is fulfilled. And therefore they become a chariot. So they, at that moment they contain a certain level of holiness. But the bris is unique. The bris, that's what's so special about the mitzvah of the bris. It's not just a chariot, a vehicle, how to fulfill, to implement God's desire. The bris actually becomes the sacred object in itself, becomes a holy object, a sacred object, and that becomes etched in part of the Jew forever and ever. Is that different than how Sukkot or uh, Mikvah would be accounted, which seems to have to do simply with the body in a Mikvah? Right, because it doesn't, it's only when you're doing the mitzvah, and then, then it leaves. While the hand is putting on tefillin, at that moment your hand is a vehicle, is the implement, while your hand is lighting the Shabbat candle, at that moment, your hand is implementing the will of God. The only way to fulfill this desire is by physically taking the match and using your hand, striking the match and lighting the candle. So at that moment, you become a vehicle to express God's will. So you acquire a certain level of holiness. As unified as a vehicle could become with its rider. But, but the mitzvah itself, the object of the mitzvah itself, the briz, that is the mitzvah. That is the desire of God. So that becomes a sacred object. That becomes like a body to a soul. Like the organ to the soul. The relationships of the organs to the soul are inseparable. And they merge into one. So too, the sacred object becomes a sacred object. becomes a holy object. They merge. They become inseparable with God. And that's, that's bris. And that's why Avraham, although Avraham fulfilled the entire Torah mitzvah, voluntarily, before the Torah was given. This is one mitzvah he didn't fulfill. He waited till the age of 99 to be commanded by God. Because no human being has the ability to take a physical object and to make it sacred, no matter how spiritual you are. Abraham was the mystic par excellence. He wrote the Book of Formation, one of the greatest classical works of mysticism ever written. But no matter how mystical you are, no matter how spiritual you are, you don't have the power to take a physical object and to transform it into something sacred, into something holy, where it becomes inseparable and one with God. Only God could, by commanding us to do the mitzvah, by wishing us to do the mitzvah, and by communicating His wish and His desire and His will, He has the power to empower us. Then when we take that object and we do the mitzvah, then that object becomes a sacred object. So Abraham had to wait till God commanded him. It's the only mitzvah that he had to wait till God commanded him in order to enable to fulfill the mitzvah of a bris, which is making that object, his body, into something holy, a sacred object. So the Jew's body becomes holy. The physical body becomes a sacred object. Especially that part of the body that non-Jews don't associate with holiness. And for a Jew, that is the holiest part of all becomes an object of a mitzvah. Is it equivalent for women? Well, it says that women have a status, halachically, they're born as if they're, they're Perfect. circumcised. Right. Is so we, a, we are, ho- are we born holy? Is that what you're saying? We don't, well, have, we don't need that? Well, it, it says a woman, uh, <laughs> yeah, your whole being is holy. <laughs> That's the woman, her whole being. So she's born as if she's in a status, a state of circumcision. Also, husband and wife are like, half souls. So when she lights the candles, she's lighting it for him. When she goes to the mikvah, it's called family purity. 
she's going to the mikvah for him. When he puts on tefillin, he's putting on tefillin for her. So, so maybe the bris is also for uh, for the whole the whole soul for everyone. Okay. This is what the sages meant when they said that the patriarchs are truly the divine chariot, for all their organs were completely holy and detached from mundane matters, and throughout their lives they served as a vehicle for nothing but the divine will. The Talmud says in the Torah that God spoke to Abraham and then he, he elevated himself from Abraham. So the rabbis say that Abraham was like God's chariot. And God was riding Abraham. He was God's vehicle. He was the vehicle to God's will and desire, and he was the expression, the implementation of God's will and desire. So they were called chariots because every organ in the body, all of them, constantly, all the time, were holy and were not engaged in materialistic things. Their whole, even when they were asleep, even when they were eating, even when they were drinking, even when they were having relations, 24-7, every fiber of their being, every bone in their body, they were completely nullified before God. Their whole being, they were egoless. Their whole being was just there to implement the divine will and desire. And that was their whole life, 24-7. So obviously we can't compare to the level of the patriarchs. But every time a Jew does a mitzvah, at that moment, your organ, that particular organ, you're walking to shul, you're walking to do a mitzvah, your hand is tying the tefillin, you're, you're lighting the Shabbat candle, you're putting your hand in your pocket and giving a penny to tzedakah, you're writing a check to tzedakah. At that moment, your organ becomes an implementation, a vehicle of God's will, so your organ becomes unified with God. At least the level of unity that the vehicle becomes with, it, with the rider. That you become egoless, you're just an expression, an implementation of God's will. So at least we can experience something of the patriarchs, not on the same level of the patriarchs. They experienced it, they experienced it experiential. They were egoless. They had no ego. We can hardly say the same about ourselves. But at least when we do a mitzvah, at that moment, we're doing the will of God. We're implementing the will of God. We're becoming a vehicle to fulfill the will of God. And therefore we become holy. Our organ becomes holy at the moment of doing a mitzvah. We take off the tefillin, then the holiness leaves, the holiness parts. Obviously, you can't compare a hand that never put on tefillin to a hand that put on tefillin. The ho- there's a, a, an impression of holiness that will always remain. You can't compare a person who never gave a penny to charity versus a person who gave a penny to charity. The impression of holiness will always remain. But nevertheless, you can't compare it to the actual time when you're doing a mitzvah, the actual moment when you're actually doing a mitzvah, when you're a vehicle and an implementation of God's innermost will and desire and pleasure. And your hand is the one who's fulfilling it. You're the chariot, the vehicle through which this inner desire is being fulfilled and implemented. At that moment, your hand becomes holy. But the object itself with which you're doing the mitzvah and the soul energy that's moving your hand, they become much more than a chariot they actually become sacred. They actually become like the organ, just like the relationship of the body to the soul. We become, they become the body to God, soul, so to speak. And they become actually sacred and holy. So this is, this explains the first part of the Zohar. That the, the part of the Zohar that says that the mitzvot, the 248 mitzvot, God's 248 limbs, the divine limbs. And just like the limbs within the body, 
every limb within the body not only expresses the soul and draws down the soul, but also draws down a unique aspect of the soul. The organ, the eyes, evoke the power of the soul to see. The ears, the power to hear. Every organ has its own unique energy that it draws out of the soul and implements from the soul and reveals. And it reveals. So too, although all the mitzvot are the will of God, but every mitzvah has its unique flavor, has its unique energy that it draws down. And that's why every mitzvah has its own unique uh, sugula, every mitzvah has its own unique um, advantage or blessing that it brings into this world. Every mitzvah has its own, even though they're all connected to God, and we become like organs to God, but every mitzvah is unique, and every mitzvah brings, draws down a separate energy, a, a unique divine energy, which the Kabbalists describe at great length. That when you do this mitzvah, you have this effect on high and you draw down the divine energy, this, divine, this level of divine energy. When you do this mitzvah, you draw down this divine energy, which ultimately translates even into material blessings. Each mitzvah has a special, unique segula that brings a special blessing in this area in your life or that area in your life. Because the mitzvot are organs. The organ in the body actually reveals and draws down the soul energy. So too, when you do a mitzvah, you actually draw down the divine energy into this world, into the, into the universe. So that explains that part of the Zohar. Next week we're going to explain the other part of the Zohar, which says that the Torah is one with God. The unity of the Torah with God is much deeper than the unity of the mitzvot with God. Although the mitzvot are sacred, and when you do a mitzvah, you become inseparable with the divine inner will of God. But the unity that you achieve through studying Torah is much deeper, much more profound. And that we'll learn next week. 